John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 614.PR0322, certificate number 43376, Ice Capades. We talked about the Olympics uh, this this past year was the uh, was the Winter Olympics in China. Kind of hard to watch. I found them not not uh, the the events hard to watch, but hard to find. Hard to find to watch. Well, that's because they were all the way over there in China, right? You could wander around town all night and not not find a, a loose track. I did. I did. I was wandering around. Every time I saw a cardboard box on the street, I would lift it up. Nope. For the Olympics under it. Hello. Are there any Bob's letters in here? Uh, what are your What are the events at the Olympics that you like to watch? The Winter Olympics specifically. Um. Yeah. Oh, really? Not that I, many. Not I a like, big fan. I like the ski jump. Yeah. But the one time I tried to go to the Winter Olympics in person was in Salt Lake, and I bought tickets for the ski jump, and I went, and I got canceled due to wind. Oh. So I saw zero ski jumpers, and that burned you on the Winter Olympics from then on. I was freezing my butt at you know, Park City at 5 a.m., and then nobody was jumping. So I just feel like I never really got the whole curling uh, fetish that that people pretended to have because it was funny. No, no, no. I can walk you through uh, learning to love curling. It's one of the great sports. And figure skating. Figure skating I like watching quite a Mm -hmm. bit. I mean, you know what? I watched a ton of a Winter Olympics as a kid, and I really do like it all. But I think I, I think I like the. Um, I think my favorites would probably be speed skating, and I like. Um, is it skeleton? What's the one mm-hmm. where they're like head first? Mm-hmm. That one just seems insane, and it's named for. Why is it named for the skeleton? Because that's the part of your body you're going to break, probably. Yeah, because uh, because it's really your skeleton that's doing the work. Yeah, the skeleton. Oh, your, your fatty bits are it's just. It's really good for your for skeleton. <laughs> like, I go for my core, I do yoga and paddleboarding, but for my skeleton, I do downhill sledding. I think what I like about the Winter Olympics is that they are uh, an order of magnitude more dangerous than the Summer Olympics. Right. All the things we named, like, what are the dangerous summer sports? None. I mean, I think a, it, a horse could step on you. You can get hurt doing the during gymnastics, certainly. Um, I mean, you can twist your ankle a lot. We see that every year, but it feels like, yeah, the balance beam or the rings, like you could break something for sure, land on your head, but there are multiple winter Olympic sports where you could die. I mean, and people do die. When they did the agony of defeat on wide world of sports, they did not choose a summer sport. No, that person was really screwed up. And I think people die on the luge course all the time and you can certainly die downhill skiing and. A Scandinavian man dies on a luge every seven seconds. <laughs> Ready? And, and we need to do something and about there's this. another one. Well, I think uh, figure skating and, uh, and all the kind of, um, you know, ice dancing, interpretive skating, those are very popular winter sports, and we don't see them very often except every 
four years in the Olympics, right? It's not like there's it, a there's a built up hunger for them because it's been years since we've last seen them, which is not true of an NBA game. Yeah, it's not a thing that you see like regional championships televised. Um, it, it, it's not like baseball that every year you you get a new opportunity to see baseball two hundred times. And traditionally, um, I think it's something that sports it's a it's a it's something that sports broadcasters counted on to actually bring women in. Um, they could count on a big female audience for figure skating and almost no other sport. This year, I saw for the first time a figure skating routine filmed by a camera person who was on the ice with them. So how could you tell? It's just the camera's moving? Well, you could instantly tell because you've never seen anything like it. It was They, they obviously had a steady cam. Was the camera close to them? Yeah. And interacting with them. So as they were skating, the camera person was also very good at ice skating and was skating around them and knew their routine. This is in competition? No. Because the skaters would have hated that in competition. Well, what was astonishing about watching this, and I wish I could direct you to this any better than just saying that it exists, but the skaters, it felt very much that they were that they were conscious of and interacting with the camera person in such a way that the whole performance was a, a really transformative as from the standpoint of a viewer. Are they doing sexy faces to the camera? No, it wasn't that, but it was just that, that having seen it filmed from the ice with someone skating along with them, then watching the Olympics where it's, a, where it's static filming or filming from, from far away outside uh, I, uh, I I felt very strongly that the future of televised figure skating is with a camera on the ice with them because it was so much more emotionally involving. You were re- because you know they're doing the moves and a lot of times from far away you have a feeling of like what are they doing or like yeah. But but the camera person knew the routine and so they were they were right there with them. Uh. And you know there are plenty of there are plenty of sports where the camera is, I guess, increasingly part of the action. Um, but this was this was something else, and I and I I can only I can only imagine it's a it's some kind of future of the sport, maybe not Olympic. But how could you even do it? I mean, the because the third person is actually part of the routine. The camera person is. Is a talent like like yeah, but the, the then their their score is based on him, the him or her not screwing up. I guess. I mean, I, I think I see it a lot in um, in ski jumping now, and and uh, like crazy ski stunts where the camera is like there's a there's a person on skis skiing backwards with the camera. And it's the only way that you could possibly yeah. see the intricacy of the jump and the trick that the camera be there with, with you. So it's either that you, that the, that the athletes have to start tuning out the fact that there is someone skating alongside them. And that, that could be it. They could, th- this could just be the future of the sport that you have to be aware that yes, there's also going to be someone, probably a friend of yours, who's the camera person who's trained with you. And now you have to perform and pretend you don't see them. That should be a metal event too, film, filming the figure skaters. But watching the ski jumps and stuff where the ski, where the, where the camera person is such a part of the, of getting the shot. Um, because to have a drone would be worse, right? To yes. have the camera on a drone, it would just be lame. Yes. You kind of need the, need that person in there. That's why I just watched baseball. The camera angles have not changed since 1955. It's yeah, still, that's right. Still zoom, it's a zoomed-in shot of the pitcher's mound from the outfield. Although they, all, they do that thing now, where they're when they're running the bases, the camera is in motion somehow on a track overhead. But I don't love it. But when they first came up with the 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 strike box, oh, did, right. weren't you into that? I mean, oh, don't I, lo- you, I love that. Yeah, right. And that one, the first time I saw it, I was like, "It's an abomination." But then you get used to it pretty fast, and and then you can yell at umpires and and have data. Do hockey games still have illuminated pucks? No, we talked about that. That was a short-lived Fox experiment that got We roasted. talked about it at the hockey game when we went to see the Kraken. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I thought we talked about it on the show. I don't think we did. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, football has a lot more of a moving camera down the sidelines now. They've built all these tracks so that, you know, when a runner's in motion, the camera can can actually dolly with them, essentially. Yeah, I feel like that that's just how sports is going to be, that, as it's a tele, you know, in the sense of it being a televised event. Maybe what you need is to have so many cameras blanketing the things, like one of those Amazon Go grocery stores, that you can actually reconstruct the events in real time from any point. Right. So even though you've just got a bunch of stationary cameras, the director can move an imaginary, a virtual drone in and out between the weaving dancers or on the ski jump or whatever it is. Yeah. Just like the, the, the fake uh, overhead camera in my Ford expedition. Exactly. Exactly. Pieced together. It'll all be like that. And then you could put Snapchat filters on the, on the ice skaters, except most figure skaters already look like they have Snapchat filters on them. What's interesting about ice skating, unlike, say, televised skiing or luging or curling, is that ice skating has always had a a real market in terms of um, people wanting to see ice skating-themed entertainment. And it goes back to the very early, well, in terms of it as a mass form of entertainment. It goes back to early Hollywood. Sonia Henney, right? The number of movies that are that have ice skating as a as a key component of the plot, um, it it really uh, it rivals boxing. I mean it's an, it's a whole it's a whole IMDB like subgenre. Um, well well am I does this predate Sonia Henning or was it was it her winning you know she won she's a Norwegian figure skater who won Olympic medals in the thirties, I think, and then came over to Hollywood and kind of the equivalent of an Esther Williams swimming movie. She was in all these ice skating themed musical comedies. Sonia Henney's first movie in 1936, one in a million kind of kicked off the ice skating film genre, big blockbuster ice skating film genre. Imagine that for decades, people had wanted more ice skating in movies and had just not had an outlet for it. And suddenly here was this, Perky Norwegian. Yeah, and she's, you know, very photogenic at one point. Um, uh, yeah, it kicked off this kind of, I mean, there's something very uh, wholesome about ice skating. And this was an era where there was a lot of synchronized dancing and couples dancing in films. It was kind of the, like a way that you could show courtship and physicality between people without actually having any nude scenes. It was also recreating what people would go to vaudeville to see, right? You know, a fun, a fun dance act, a tap number. You want to have three or four of those in your movie to compete. And it makes, you know, it's for a big blockbuster. It's quite a, it's, you know, it makes quite a spectacular scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sonia Henney's movie, one in a million in 1936, uh, co-star Don Amici. <laughs> I bet he doesn't get on skates, <laughs> but then, uh, uh it it uh, it precipitated a whole new kind of um, ice skating genre that was also, but what really was the genesis of this was the establishment in 1924 of the first Winter Olympics in Chamonix, France, and ice skating, which had always been a thing that people did on frozen ponds, and uh, and there had there was a long tradition of kind of uh, ice skating stunts, people jumping over barrels and, uh, you know, something in Scandinavia or Switzerland, there was, there were always three guys that were doing a goofy, like watch me, uh, leapfrog my two friends or, or, um, how could you not after your, after having enough Akvavit? Exactly. It was, it was, there was always ice skating, competitive ice skating, but the Olympics really brought ice skating, uh, and and balletic ice skating to right. a mass audience. There's no great. There's no graceful dancing if it's if it's stunts. You know. Right. Right. And that obviously there had always been as long as there were ice skates, there was somebody out there trying to do it more beautifully. But the Winter Olympics kind of um, gave it a stage. Gave right? it a stage. That's right. International stage. And so that was in 1924. Um, and the 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 kind of gradual awareness of of ice skating as a form of dancing. So, like in a lot of things, 
you know, all it takes is one star to kind of, um, to kind of kick off, uh, a new genre. And Sonia Henny was, uh, was sort of exactly the star to do it. She, to this day, retains the most titles of figure skating titles ever of any skater. She won 10 world championships and, uh, I guess you could probably have a longer career back then when the sports in its infancy. Yeah. Although she, I think is one of only a a very small, maybe, maybe an exclusive group of two women who have returned to defend their Olympic championship oh, yeah, yeah. in figure skating, right? It, Her and Katarina Vitt. Yeah, that's right. Because the careers are so short. Careers are short. It tends to, but she, you know, she went to the Olympics three times from 28 to 36. Uh, and like I said, became a Hollywood star and opened up a, opened up this universe to people who had been already kind of doing skating acts and, and, um, skating became a theme where uh, a theme for films and entertainment that kind of, uh, was a, uh, like a career opportunity for Olympic skaters and world championship skaters. Cause only one studio can have Sonia Henney. Right. So if ice skating movies are making money, every studio wants to follow the money. And it turns out there were, I mean, every, every Olympics features skaters from around the world and they, um, they often were, well, yeah, photogenic young people. And alongside the, the, uh, this new genre of skating spectacular in Hollywood, there, uh, there was, there was an audience for in-person skating, uh, events. Well, skating wouldn't have been on TV at all. Well, it wasn't TV. That's what I'm saying. So so the only way you would have been able to see figure skating back then would be either Sonia Henney doing it in a movie, or if you can go to some live event, there's... Yeah, newsreels. Uh, Yeah, I guess that's true. But there was hockey, right? And hockey was already... Competitive hockey was a thing that that happened in sports arenas uh, in American cities and in European cities. Which is good. That means there's already an ice rink with stands, right? And there was... uh, And there was vaudeville. And skating and vaudeville and Hollywood all kind of in the mid thirties sort of coalesced in a thing called the ice follies, which were started by three Minnesotans. Of course. Uh, a guy by the name of Eddie Skepstedis or Skepstedits. Yeah. And his brother Roy and his friend Oscar Johnson, who were three goofy or three guys that were just out like on a frozen lake in St. Paul having fun, jumping barrels. Hey guys, what if we combine all three kinds of entertainment there are? Figure skating, <laughs> vaudeville, and movies. Well, and this was this was pre-movies. They were just out having like a, you know, I, and you can you can see these guys jumping barrels and a crowd gathers. Uh, and they decided they were going to take this, they were going to turn this into an act and they called it the sh- the Shipsteads and Johnson Ice Follies. That's the kind of thing you could name something back then. And the three of them, you know, started a, a kind of, sli- you know, a little bit of a touring act. Uh, they linked up with a, a a Swiss duo by the name of Frickin' Frack, who did comedy uh, slapstick on, on skates. That's funny. I think I've heard people use Frickin' Frack as a shorthand for... For so, these these two goofs, like I think my father in law is a frickin' frack fan. So my dad also said frickin' frack to mean any two ding dongs, and it t- turns out looking into it, frickin' frack were they were huge ding dongs. He, well, they were <laughs> huge, huge stars. Oh, is that right? And for decades, frickin' frack had a really long career, and became internationally not just internationally known as frickin' frack, the, the, the lovable ice skating goofballs, but the, the term frickin' frack also means two somewhat indistinguishable dorks. Anytime that appears in, in multiple languages around the world, like, ah, he's a frickin' frack. Uh, it's, it, it's, it became like a global coinage. 
And this was even before they had their NPR show where they talk about how to repair cars. Well, and those guys called themselves Crick and Crack or whatever their nickname for themselves was Cl- after Frick and Frack. Click and Clack, right? Click yeah, and yeah. Clack, yeah. Uh, so the Ice Follies, which they, which, you know, the uh, Shipsteads and Johnson's Ice Follies got shortened to Ice Follies. This was an age when entertainments would come through town, circuses and right. vaudeville troops. And, and finally, if your town has an ice rink, you can come see this. Well, and as 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 Sonia Henney's movies started to uh, you know to really bring in the dollars, then other studios decided they also wanted to have some ice skating movies, and MGM contracted the the uh, the Shipstead and Johnson brothers slash friends to do a movie called The Ice Follies of 1939, starring Joan Crawford, and make their own ice movie, ice picture. I'm guessing Joan Crawford doesn't ice skate. Doesn't do a ton of skating in it, but frickin' Fracker there. Joan Crawford's like the the romantic leads in a Marx Brothers movie who just, you know, comes out and carries the plot. Right. Then that, that nobody's there for. I've never seen Ice Follies of 1939, so it's possible that Joan Crawford does her own stunts. <laughs> I'm not sure. But no more wire bla- skate blades. At this point, you know, just prior to the start of World War II, um, Ice skating is on everybody's mind in the United States, and the movies are coming out uh, fast and thick. Uh, I love forgotten fads. Yeah. You know? Imagine a time when nobody could get enough ice skating. In 1937, Thin Ice. In 1939, Ice Follies of 39. Also, Everything's on Ice. So in 1940... The owners or the empresarios of various arenas in the East Coast are all having a business meeting, like, uh, as, you know, as arena owners often do. It's kind of like a mafia, like, summit meeting. Uh, They were all together, and they were trying to figure out ways to fill their stadiums on the off-season. Like when it's not hockey or basketball season or whatever? And a man by the name of John Harris, who who ran the the stadium in Pit, or the arena in Pittsburgh, had gotten kind of uh, enthralled by the ice skating scene, and had actually hired Sonia Henney herself to come perform uh, between periods in a in, for his <laughs> ho- uh, hockey. I feel like she's a bigger star than the hockey players are. She was, but this was like you were saying, the only time that anybody would have had a chance to see her perform live. She was a big star. And so she came and did a did an exhibition of figure skating and it blew the roof off the place. It was a it was a, a massive success. And I, you, I just would settle for watching the Zamboni for twenty minutes. Imagine right. if some A list movie star do appeared between periods. Although we were just at a Kraken game and they fill the arena with garbage now. I mean, so much, uh, so much, m- many t-shirt cannons and, and well, fake the, games. Well, there's a full on Seattle, uh, indie pop. Yeah. Uh, concert between the second and third periods. Well, all this begins with John Harris back in 1940. <laughs> now he, like the ice follies were a kind of regional and, and mostly comedic, um, you know, group of uh, like stunt, ice stunt type of things. But John Harris sees that, that there's a, uh, that there's a market for figure skating as its own form of entertainment. And he proposes to these other arena owners. Um, there were nine different arenas represented Boston garden arenas from Buffalo, Cleveland, Hershey, Pennsylvania, uh, the, you know, the metropolis of Hershey, New Haven, Philadelphia, Harris's Pittsburgh, Rhode Island, and Springfield, Massachusetts. He said, why don't we collaborate on a ice skating review? We'll call it the Ice Capades. And it will be, a, you know, it'll be a touring company that we own as this, you know, this arena cabal. It's a smoke-filled room of guys taking Broma Seltzer and dreaming of taking over figure skating. So they put together a, a show starring Sonia Henney, uh, but with other famous 
Olympians who had transitioned through, uh, had transitioned into movie stars in this like boom of Hollywood ice skating movies, including Belita, who was a UK Olympian who made the very successful films Silver Skates and also starred in a film noir that does she, had a skating theme. I was about to say, does she ever get on skates in her detective movie? Because the plot contortions required to alternate, you know, a traditional Hollywood romance plot with, um, with you know, the four or five ice skating numbers you need must have been tricky. You can break into song, but you can't really break into ice skating. Well, but it does happen. Um, the the plot of this of this noir, which was called Suspense, uh, the proprietor of an ice skating review <laughs> is murdered, uh, <laughs> promotes a peanut vendor to a management position in order to improve, improve the act of the show's star, who is the owner's wife. Why, but would, he, why would a peanut vendor help? Is this, is this performer a monkey? Well, the peanut vendor is, a. the peanut vendor is having a, an affair with the, owner's wife is there some business book that's like when in doubt promote a peanut vendor (laughs) it's you know i haven't seen that movie either really in order to do this show properly i should have watched 15 ice skating movies these movies are all so bad they would never be on tcm so i don't know where you're gonna see any of these i don't you know some some of these actually this would be a great film festival like 15 ice skating movies i bet tcm does this during the winter olympics i bet they run all these old sonia honey movies you know, I uh, I've been trying to build an art collection for myself um, because you know not only is art a wonderful thing to have around the house um, as a decorative element, but it's also it can end up being a great investment. And for somebody like myself, the only option traditionally has been that I meet young artists at street fairs and uh, at local art schools, and I buy their paintings really cheap when they're young, and then hope against hope that they became the, the, they become a new Basquiat. And then all of a sudden I'm one of those people that bought like a Monet when he was a struggling artist that hasn't worked for me so far. My art collection really right now is mostly old mad magazines in picture frames, but there's a new, uh, there's a new concept in, uh, in art ownership where like blue chip art is being offered like fractional ownership is being offered by a company called masterworks where you can invest in an actual Picasso or a Banksy or a Basquiat at a price point that is accessible to you. So you you end up with a fractional ownership of a painting that as you've seen, surely if you follow the art market as closely as I do uh, in times of tremendous inflation in times where the economy is going off the rails, sometimes the art market is one that responds surprisingly consistently or maybe unexpectedly well. So Masterworks, this is this incredible story. In October 2020, Masterworks sold Mona Lisa, not that Mona Lisa, but one by Banksy, for $1.5 million, but had sold it to Masterworks investors the prior October for $1,039,000, netting investors a 32% net annualized return on their investment. This is a really intriguing thing. And, uh, and as somebody that, you know, that wants to build an art portfolio, but also wants to diversify my financial portfolio. Right now, almost all of my savings is in nuts and seeds, like a lot of people my age. I put a lot of money in nuts and seeds. You can't go wrong when the winter comes. But the idea of diversifying it into art, I think, is is very intriguing to me. And, you know, it's and very tangible. So if you're as interested in, as I am in building an intelligent portfolio, go to masterworks.art slash omnibus. That's masterworks dot art slash omnibus and uh and check out this 
like super curious and cool new way to invest and diversify your portfolio. That's masterworks.art slash omnibus. They put together Ice Capades and they send it out on tour and it's a huge hit. This is Ice Follies? This is Ice Capades. Now, oh, Ice okay. Follies is a separate and uh, a, a kind of more um, more slapstick enterprise at first. Ice, Ice Capades is more dance. It's more dance. It's more... Um, and it's a pun on escapade, I think, as a... A, a pun I never understood until I was an adult. Yeah, isn't that nice? It's an escapade, it's an escapade. but with more it's ice. It's an ice capade. I only want escapades with Janet Jackson. Uh, they do. They spend all of uh, 1941 on tour, and then in 1941, but p- before the war, they make their own film, Ice Capades, the film, and uh, it's a hit enough that they make. Ice Capades Review in 1942. None of these are good movies, but uh, but they are movies nonetheless. There's a people another didn't, people didn't care about good movies back then. You Apparently would just not. you would go to whatever was showing in your town. Sometimes you'd walk in in the middle and you would just wait to see a full cycle of newsreel cartoon short subject movie, and then it would get back to the part of the movie where you started and you would go home. It I was, think I did that. People were happy with that. They didn't have TVs. Uh, in 1942, uh, the movie Iceland, then 43 had winter time. I mean, it was a huge thing all through the forties. Ice Capades was, uh, a success and they did a thing because it was like pretty clean, uh, virtuous seeming. I mean, you know, ice and snow are, yeah. Yeah, like it's all it's all very Nordic, yeah, so it's, it's untroubled by whatever racial fears America has at the time. Although during the war, I think that might have been um, somewhat problematic. You didn't want it to be too too Nordic. But right away, it it filled up the it filled up the stadiums, and it became a regular. It became a perennial act in Atlantic City. Um. It was there every year from 41 to 81, 40 years on the Atlantic City Boulevard or uh, boardwalk, ice capades as a, as a featured performance. And in the late forties, after the war, ice capades first licensed Disney characters to appear. And this is before there was a Disneyland. So the first time you could, as a kid, see Mickey Mouse or any kind of Disney character live, Cinderella, was by going to see them on ice. You know, I just realized that I've seen footage of Disneyland opening in 1955, and they've got the characters in the suits walking around, and some of them look kind of off-model and down-market, and I think it's because they were reusing costumes that had been used for these ice skating extravaganzas. So even at the Disney parks, the first time you saw Mickey or the Three Little Pigs or the Seven Dwarves running around, it was these... Ice capade costumes. Not only that, but so it it literally was. The touring costumes for Disney characters from Ice Capades were the original Disney characters <laughs> at Disneyland. And Disneyland hired away some of the skaters to be the original characters at Disneyland. So Ice Capades and Disney were in competition for talent. Well, I mean, this is jumping ahead, but do you ever have to take your kid to Disney on Ice? Because this has continued to be pretty much the only successful ice skating touring ice skating performance in America is Disney's Wing, where you can go see Disney princesses jump and bound on the ice. I have and never. I've, I've had to take my kid there twice. I have never done it, and you know, it might be cheaper than actually trying to take her to Disneyland. Yes, just drive up to Everett because once a year <laughs> they've got. Uh, Jasmine and Tiana and Ariel swooping out over the ice. Well, ice follies continued along. In fact, uh, at one point, ice capades and ice follies tried to collaborate on a ice Whoa. show called Ice Cycles, but it <laughs> that would didn't, be like Superman meeting Spider Man. Yeah, it didn't really. It didn't. It didn't pan out. Ice cycles, um, but. At, uh, at this point, John Harris became John Harris, the 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 guy from Pittsburgh. He had always taken the reins of Ice Capades, and he became kind of the sole proprietor of it. Um, he 
1941, he hired a 16-year-old figure skater by the name of Donna Atwood to be the star of Ice Capades, or one of the stars. And in 49, he married her, um, although he was 27 years older than she was. And what a shock. They, uh, and they ran Ice Capades all the way into the 1960s. Uh, and, and always featuring a kind of a new cast of the most exciting ice skaters recently from the Olympics or, you know, the, 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 uh, it was, it, it was a, a novelty cast, right? And there, there would always be this bumper crop of new ice skating, new young ice skating medalists who didn't really have any career prospects after their one winter Olympics or world championship. Right. And now you could see them in person and they, he they can make a little cash while they've still got the, the name. The, the Harris's, you know, maintained it and, and built it into a, a successful enterprise such that in 1963, they were able to sell it for five and a half million dollars of 1963 money to uh, Metro Media, the, the entertainment conglomerate. So this was a big money-making live enterprise. It was. They had three separate companies, an Eastern, a Western, and a Continental company, uh, all performing simultaneous ice capades around the nation. Um, they ended up buying or building their own ice rinks, um, which were known as the ice chalets. And so they were these like temporary that would, they pack them down like a tent when they left. No, they were, um, they were like local sort of Cirque du Soleil style performance venues, the ice chalets. And then they were also places where people could you know, pay to ice skate. Oh, ice yeah. skating was a popular diversion, like a, like a, uh, a thing that you would take the family to go do. I mean, when I grew, when I was growing up, we would go ice skating as a kind of Saturday afternoon, wholesome family activity. My kids still like to go. Do they? The rings are often, the rings are often kind of like depressing, but, yeah. but my kids and their friends have all been into ice skating at different times. Yeah. I wonder whether or not, we, there was an ice chalet we might have gone to at one point. America was very into things shaped like chalets back then, if you remember ever going to IHOP or Wienerschnitzel. That's right. It was a kind of show. Well, yeah, well, and there were Leif Erikson statues everywhere. We really romanticized like this pan-European idea of, uh, of quaintness. So in 64, um, ice capades were sold to Metro Media. In... 1964, a Canadian by the name of Thomas Scallon, who'd been involved with the Ice Follies, actually, uh, he acquired Ice Follies, and now Ice Follies... So both are still going in parallel. There's like a NFL-AFL kind of thing with two two separate troops in the space. And there's enough of a market that if you want to go see an an ice-based form of family entertainment, you're going to have a, you're going to have a lot of options, but there, there were people, there were people gagging to do it. And they're competing for the services of these figure skaters, which helps raise their salaries. If, right. If there's multiple takers in the market. Um, you could see Trixie, the skating juggler. You could see, you know, any number, you could see the Flintstones on ice. Like, and this was before on ice became, uh, sort of a, a familiar, like in bed kind of, uh, ending to almost any Hollywood property. I mean, that's the problem with Disney on ice is that there are so many people who believe that Walt is actually literally, literally on, ice, on ice, or at least yeah. his head. Uh, Thomas Scallon, you know, tried to expand ice follies and, uh, introduced holiday on ice, a Christmas show, uh, a Christmas show. And then Disney kind of left the, um, Disney left the umbrella of ice capades and Thomas Scallon was the one that introduced the standalone show Disney on ice, which you uh, can still take your daughters to today, folks. That's right. It still exists. Well, and it's one, as, as you, as you foreshadowed, one of the only ones that, that survived the great ice capades, uh, collapse like like set of murders no there are no murders are we to the time period yet where you would have seen any of these shows have you like where where are we in time almost we're we're getting into the 70s right almost um after uh after harris sells ice capades to metro media 
Um, they are combined with the like a, a like a whole set of ice chalet rinks and with the Harlem Globetrotters <laughs> as a as a co-property Wait. sold to the uh, International Broadcasting Incorporated Company. I see. So now the same umbrella company owns Globetrotters Games and right. Ice Entertainment. They can't play in the same arenas for the most part. And this brings us to the 1970s where uh, these touring companies ha- kind of reach their... Uh, I don't know. The uh, I feel like this was an era uh where where ice skating as a form of popular entertainment could not have been any bigger. There were big stars, right? Yeah. Big American medal-winning stars on both the men and the women's side, right? And all of and all of them were, you know, after the Olympics almost immediately available for your personal consumption at your local ice rink as these Touring companies made the rounds. And I would see them on like, you know, 70s variety shows and game mm-hmm. shows. You would still see, you know, Peggy Fleming or, or Dick Button or I forget all their names, but, you know, they would do the the TV rounds. They were legit celebrities. Well, and in fact, there was a television show called Stars on Ice, which was a Canadian production. Were the Hudson Brothers on it? From 1976 to 1970 or to 1981. Wow. Stars on Ice was a huge hit on the the CTV network in Canada, hosted by Alex Trebek. No. Yeah. I didn't know he hosted an ice skating show. Alex Trebek hosted Stars on Ice. That guy could do it all. He's a big hockey fan. I I think he's a pretty good skater. I wonder if he ever strapped him on. Hmm. Well, as we turn the corner into the early 1980s, um, the ice capade style of entertainment kind of hit uh, uh, market saturation. And people were now distracted by all the many other forms of entertainment there were, like video games and um, having sex with your wife. MTV. MTV. And there wasn't quite the w- same. Wait, with my wife? No, no, no. Oh, Your okay. wife would have been just a child then. Thank goodness. Um, with one's wife. With with one's wife or with... Or spouse in, in or many, partner. In many cases, uh, yeah. In right. many cases, a, a person you had no intention of marrying. I hate to I hate to say that about the 80s. But. Or maybe your sister-in-law because your wife was having sex with a Satanist. That was more of a 40s thing. I guess so. Was this... We're getting into the era where I actually would have seen the... Did you ever go to any of these shows? It, they were such a feature on the landscape, and I, I, I feel like they were happening all around me, and I never, we, we never went to see the ice capades. I think my sister and mother might have gone, and I just was, I, I, it wasn't that I wasn't interested. It was a week I was with my dad or something, right. and I never got to see it. Did you see ice capades? I went to ice. I, I think this all this whole time I thought I had been to ice capades, but doing a little Googling, I saw the Muppet-themed one, the Sesame Street one, which I think was an Ice Follies license. Yes, and they both went, uh, both Ice Follies and Ice Capades tried to keep the um, tried to keep the ball rolling or tried to keep uh, right. audiences coming in With by licensing very various media properties. We didn't go to a lot of stuff. Like it was always a special occasion when my parents took us to something, and it was like you know, uh, foreshadowed for weeks in advance. Well, we're going to do, you know, cause we didn't, you know, I think now it's more typical to just, you know, go to a movie twice a week or, or, you know, maybe not movies, but you know, people just do stuff more. And it was a big deal when they budgeted to buy us tickets to something. And we went to the Seattle center Coliseum, went to see whatever the Sesame street on ice thing was, the Sesame street ice follies sometime in the late seventies, probably. And I still remember it because it was the first time I'd ever seen any of the Muppets' legs. Huh. Oh, right. Of course. You know, because you would see, you know, Big Bird, you'd seen his legs. But you'd never seen Ernie and Bert do um, acrobatic jumps. Uh, So that was very... Oscar skated, like, with legs coming out of the bottom of his can. (laughs) I mean, we all have legs coming out of the bottom of our can. Yes. But Oscar more than most. And it was just like... I think it was probably the only time I'd been in the Coliseum for you know, probably a decade on either side because I didn't go to a Sonics game until much later. And I think I might've missed it because I moved to Alaska right about that time. And Alaska is just all ice skating anyway. Yeah. And I don't, I, but I, I also don't know if the ice capades came up there. I think we were still jumping barrels. It's like bringing, bringing, uh, what, uh, tea to China. That's not the expression. Bringing coals to Newcastle. Yeah. Bringing coals to Newcastle. 
bringing ice skating to Alaska. Come on. Well, so so right about 1980-81, it kind of started to uh, lose its the the audience drifted away, and maybe some of it has to do with the boycott of the eighty Olympics. I mean, it's hard to know what. Even with Dorothy Hamill's cute, cute hair. And Dorothy Hamill was part of Ice Capades starting in 1977. She was with the Ice Capades for many years and bridged this, this uh, decline in audience. And I think a, a, a part of it was that it was seen as kids entertainment because yeah. of all this licensing of, of, uh, and it stayed squeaky clean while the rest of the culture did not. Right. Um, so by 1984, uh, there were still famous Olympian skaters that um, that still were celebrities. And now you could, of course, for a long time, we've been able to watch skating on television. Yeah. Uh, in 1984, Scott Hamilton, the Olympic gold medalist from the United States, joined Ice Capades. And he realized that uh, it was a kiddie show and he felt like there was an audience for a skating show that was more sophisticated for adults. Gritty. Uh, if not gritty, then at least not clowny. And he took the clowny kind of ice follies out of um, his next enterprise. He left He left uh, Ice Capades and started his own skating show called Stars on Ice, which you may recall. This is... It has the same name as the Alex Trebek hosted show Stars on Ice. But it's unrelated? Unrelated. Stars on Ice, where it was more, you know, there were no cartoon characters. It was more romantic. It was more. You bring your your date, not your four kids. Bill Graham Productions also had a a kind of Stars on Ice style production called Skating. Um, And. Skating eventually was bought by or merged with Scott Hamilton's Scott Hamilton's Stars on Ice, now directly competing with uh, Ice Capades. It's an and, oversaturated market. And Ice Capades in 1986 was sold by Metro Media to uh, the parent company that owned Ice Follies. So they were finally united. The same thing happened with circuses. Remember when Barnum and Bailey's and Ringling Brothers, you know, kind of the last two surviving circuses merged just because the market had shrunk so much. Yeah, and now they were now same, same thing. Now they had uh, they had they joined forces and uh, and that that was a thirty million dollar acquisition, by the way, <laughs> in 1986. But by 19 uh, by 1991, the center could not hold, and the whole enterprise went bankrupt. No more, no more escapades after ninety. I guess I'm surprised it was that late. Well, so what happened? And they had been tr- they'd been trying to keep um, they'd been trying to keep audiences interested. They had they'd put up a Flintstones escapades. They had they licensed the Snorks. Oh man, like that's how you bring people in. So they couldn't get the Smurfs, but they got the Snorks. They got the Snorks. They had uh, Ewoks. <laughs> On ice. <laughs> Wait, who who plays the Ewoks? Uh, they had. Are there enough like kids or little people that can skate? I'm not sure. I didn't. Again, I didn't see the Ewoks on ice movie. I think it'd be funny if the Ewoks are actually played by normal sized skaters, and they just find very tall people to play the humans. Or yeah, or right, or the, or like or those st- st- Han Solo is like two got, Ewoks sitting on each other's shoulders. Stilts, yeah, yeah. Uh, they did uh, Barbie. At one point, they had a. They had a McDonald's themed show called the Golden Hamburger Caper. This is making Scott Hamilton very sad, I think, because this is a serious art form. And I'm looking at Scott Hamilton's Wikipedia page, and his photo is a picture of him doing a golf themed routine mm-hmm. in Stars on Ice, which well, I guess his idea of what dads would want to see at a at a at an ice show. So Stars on Ice kind of kind of kept cooking along as um, as ice capades ran out of gas. Um, right before they went bankrupt, uh, Ice Capades put on a show starring Jason Bateman and Alyssa Milano. Did they skate? Uh, they, uh, they did in this... More than Don Amici. A little bit. And the show, it was a special written by Bruce Valanche. <laughs> That's how you know the jokes are going to be. Mwah. So they were really, really working... In 91, it goes out of business, and Dorothy Hamill 
put together a business enterprise. Dorothy Hamill at the time was married to a guy by the name of Dr. Kenneth Forsyth, who was, I think it's the same Dr. Kenneth Forsyth that now is promoting green light wellness supplements. (laughs) Okay. But Dorothy Hamill incorporated, started Dorothy Hamill International Company, and she bought the assets out of bankruptcy and put uh, Ice Capades, like, uh, and then rebranded it as Dorothy Hamill's Ice Capades and tried to put it back on the road. They by, did, by the way, I'm just learning that Dorothy Hamill's previous spouse was um, Dean Martin's hot son, the guy that died in the plane crash. He, Dean Martin's super hot son, who was also an air an Air Force pilot, died in an in a like National Guard Air Force training. Yeah, he was accident. still doing his monthly stuff, even though yeah. he was starring in Misfits of Science on NBC or or whatever. Yeah, he's super hot. I have um, no idea. He died in '87, and Dorothy Hamill married. This, uh, uh, Kenneth Forsyth and the two of them tried to make a go by, uh, by mounting Cinderella on ice. And, um, it was not a success. It did not, uh, it did not translates into skates in the seats. So she sold ice capades to Pat Robertson. Because it's what? such a family-friendly style of entertainment that Pat Robertson felt like it was going to be perfect as a component in his international family entertainment was this a, corporation. This, this was a live entertainment company, or was he was going to put it on TV after the 700 Club? I think both things. Mm-hmm. Um, it was probably combined with a museum of creationism. <laughs> and you got to get rid of the Flintstones. Yeah. <laughs> Some more. No, the Flintstones are are compatible with both Marxism and creationism. Oh, right, because they have dinosaur pets. That's right. They're, they got, they got they're pterodactyl right. record players. And I'm sure it's some. And oh, and uh, think about BC. Uh, there's a, a hairy bird or, or all, a flightless all ca- bird with hairy feathers. All cavemen can be Christian. Christian, if you if you squint. Uh, Pat Robertson kept Dorothy Hamill on as president of the company, and. Weirdly made Dr. Kenneth Forsyth the CEO of uh, the new International Family Entertainment. I like how I've just heard of this guy, but I'm sure he's underqualified. That transaction happened in 1995, but in later on in that same year, uh, International Family Entertainment sold Ice Capades. I knew Uh, it. I knew Forsyth was no good. They should have hired a peanut vendor. <laughs> it, uh, it totally fell apart. And then in 2000, there was an attempt to resurrect Ice Capades, which fell apart. And then in 2008, an attempt to rebrand Ice Capades as a kind of Cirque du Soleil meets Ice Capades. It's funny that the name still has enough value and recognition that every decade, somebody is like, you know what? I bet we could buy Ice Capades TM. And we'll just do it like, and then they just insert whatever's popular at the time. So, uh, pro wrestling, uh, monster trucks, uh, Cirque du Soleil. Well, and because there's a lot of goodwill associated with the brand. There is, and there's still actually a lot of um, there is still a market for ice based entertainment because. Stars on Ice, the Scott Hamilton, the Scott Hamilton joint, where, where he dresses as a golfer, continues to perform. And in fact, um, Dorothy Hamill made an appearance, uh, joined the 2012 2013 of Stars on Ice crossover. Um, and I guess you've got now you've got the post Nancy and Tanya world where there were big celebrity ice skaters, and there continue to be ice skating movies. Blades of Glory. I mean, every every year there's a new movie where the the plot revolves around a plucky girl who decides to, uh, you know, against all odds, make her way from her small town to the the national stage, the, the global o- stage. The other day on Jeopardy, there was a clue about the cutting edge. I don't know about this movie. Uh, like a hockey hockey player, DB Sweeney is enlisted because a figure skater needs a figure skater. Maura Kelly needs a new partner. 
and the players didn't know it. And I announced that it was like one of my wife's favorite movies, The Cutting Edge, which is how I remember the conversation going. And I called my my warm and lovely wife to mm-hmm. to say, "Hey, we talked about Cutting Edge on uh, Jeopardy. I said it was one of your favorite movies." And there's a long pause, and she was like, "What's?" What's the cutting edge? Oh, she's never seen it. It was your other <laughs> wife you were thinking of. She actually has. I was like, it's that figure skating movie you like with Moira Kelly and D.B. Sweeney. And she was like, oh, yeah, I guess we watched that in college a couple mm, times. One of my favorite movies. It turned out the my uh, the legend of her loving the cutting edge was greatly exaggerated. But yes, like they keep making ice skating movies. Like not the one where the girl goes blind, but other kinds. They keep making ice skating movies, and there continues to be a Stars on Ice and a market for ice skating-related events, but ice capades is no more. It could not uh, – that its unique brand of oh, – and ice follies, too. And its the, punny name is out of style. There is Disney on Ice, and there's children's ice entertainment still, as you as you mentioned. I think the Sesame Street thing might be a occasional tour. Every once in a while, I mean, there are media properties that get translated to ice, like Grease on Ice, High School Musical on Ice, Among Us on Ice, Minecraft of, on Ice, Wizard of Oz on Ice. Pretty much, you can it should be put, Wizard of Ice. I'm just gonna, go. I'm just going to say it right now, you can put on ice at the end of a lot of things, and people will come. But somehow that uh, you, that combination of fun and serious uh, that that uh, characterized the ice capades, uh, I think there it, it ended up uh, particularly once it got Pat Robertson all over it, it and the Harlem Globetrotters. Geez, there's just too much uh, too much baggage associated with ice capades. Do you think you and I could buy the name? And start Ken and John's ice capades? Well, I don't even know what we want to do with it. I just feel like it's IP that's just sitting there, and maybe you and I could buy ice capades, and then we decide what what it's for. I mean, in a in a world of climate change, ice based entertainment is going to seem increasingly novel and exciting. Uh, I think there's nowhere to go but up. In 2012, there was a a show in Salt Lake for the 10th anniversary of the Olympics, and Mitt Romney was part of the performance. Did he ice skate? I really, uh, I want to say that he did. Even if he didn't, I still want to say he did. Let's just say he did. For the purposes of the future, imagine that Mitt Romney is a ice skater, parenthesis, also failed presidential candidate. But to those listening here in in, uh, the year 2022, this year's Stars on Ice features the entire U.S. Olympic skating team. Every single member. Well, I, I mean, mean, I I guess it's that or going back to the, you know, bagging groceries or whatever. Yeah, I mean, because you, the world does not. You judge what entire means, but there's also stars on ice Europe. There's stars on ice Japan. Um, stars on ice is is a booming uh, enterprise. That's and a little I'm not suspicious. Sure. Do you think Scott Hamilton is maybe laundering money for somebody else? Yeah. He's laundering cartel money through his ice skating operation. I'm not sure I want to go up against them. Disney on ice also. Oh, interesting. The, the parent company of Disney on ice is still called ice follies and holiday on ice Inc. They so haven't, they I, haven't re-registered their uh, LLC. Uh, ice follies continues to live even like the ghost of the uh, the ice follies, the oldest of all of these, like it, it inhabits the soul of Disney on Ice somewhere. And that concludes Ice Capades. Entry 614.PR0322, certificate number 43376 in the omnibus. As always, we were... Uh, the members of the Omnibus Project could be found on social media as at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick, jointly at Omnibus Project. Please feel free to send us your ice capades or ice follies memories, or even stars on ice if you like golf routines, to theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Find fellow futurelings on uh, Meta or uh, Reddit or Discord. Wherever the word futureling uh, can be Google or DuckDuckGoed, DuckDuckWent, um, you'll find like-minded uh, listeners and supporters of the project. Speaking of supporters, 
those who really put their money with their mouth in should go to patreon.com slash omnibusproject. And you're missing out if you're not listening to the weekly addenda shows. Weekly? What if we started doing a weekly addenda show? The monthly addenda shows. You're missing out if you're uh, if you're not a Patreon supporter. You can... What did I not do? Oh, you can send us physical things in the mail. Send us your Ice Capades programs to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Future links uh, from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. We wish you many goods and cheese and hope you come see us often. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final work. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omni.